Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. It's Friday the 25th of September today, and we're going to begin with, no surprise, Australia-China relations. Today, looking at the relationship between foreign interference and other domestic issues and our diplomacy. Next, we're going to pick up on a theme covered in our recent interview with Richard Maud, New Models of International Cooperation, today focusing on the trilateral format. Third, we'll have a brief look at Japan's new Prime Minister, and finally, have a quick chat about what is happening in Thailand. Okay, let's get started. We need to begin by picking up where we left off last episode on the Australia-China relationship. Not long after we recorded our last episode on the 9th of September, the Chinese government accused Australian authorities of secretly raiding the homes of four Chinese journalists in Australia back in June and seizing various possessions. These alleged enforcement actions seem to form part of the joint investigation being conducted by ASIO and the AFP into foreign interference with the subjects being inside the Office of Labor backbencher in the New South Wales Parliament, Shaket Mosselman, and the alleged protagonist being his former staff member, John Jiang. The allegations by the Chinese included that Australian authorities told the four journalists to stay quiet about the raids. While ASIO and the AFP did not comment, the Department of Home Affairs revealed that the visas of two Chinese scholars had been revoked on the advice of ASIO due to concerns or alleged risks to national security. The two were members of a WeChat group that also included Mr Zhang, who was challenging this entire investigation in the High Court as breaching the Constitution. Now, Alan, for the sake of our discussion, let's assume that there is truth in the allegation by the Chinese government that there were raids of some kind executed against Chinese nationals back in June as part of a foreign interference investigation. I would categorise such a situation as being where a domestic law enforcement action has implications for Australia's bilateral relationship with another country here, China. So the general question to begin, Alan, under what conditions, if any, would the Australian government give any kind of informal notice or perhaps an after-the-event briefing to a foreign government that explains what's happening with this domestic law enforcement action? Or is this simply a case where it's about sovereignty and the actions speak for themselves? It's a truth universally acknowledged that foreign ministries, and it doesn't matter whether it's China or the US or Australia or Kiribati, have greater status than they do power particularly when it comes to domestic and security issues. So they've got standing on international questions, but it tends to diminish rapidly, that standing, once you get back to home soil. So I wouldn't expect any advance notice of a domestic law enforcement action to be given. The role of DFAT officers would be as the complaints desk for the Australian government listening calmly to whatever protests were delivered by angry ambassadors after the event and responding as best they can. 
Now, would that also then be true sort of inside the Australian government? Given, as you said, if DFAT is going to have to become a complaints desk, would they be getting advance notice themselves? I mean, it's a reality that the Chinese government is going to react to these kinds of situations. Beijing seems to see these types of actions through the lens of its own interests. And so there's, I think, a broader question here about the fusion of foreign policy and domestic policy. Of course, in principle, you would like your domestic law enforcement agencies to do their work without regard for anything other than enforcing the law, but we don't live in that world. So can I ask my question this way? If Australian law enforcement is going to raid the residence of a foreign national who is also a journalist, is DFAT a stakeholder in that decision? And beyond DFAT, should this be a whole-of-government process? Well, as, as the custodian of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, DFAT would be involved if the foreign concerned had diplomatic or consular status. But in the case of other foreign nationals who might come to the attention of the security agencies, they might get an informal heads-up from the police or ASIO in particularly sensitive cases, but DFAT wouldn't usually expect advance warning. So these interesting events relate to, and I think, to an opinion piece that was written by Paul Kelly of The Australian, and that was published on the 16th of September, and you sent it to me, Alan, with your recommendation. Can you tell me why you thought it was a worthwhile piece? Yeah, well, there were three reasons. The first was to be honest, that I found myself in pretty close agreement with everything he wrote. And however hard we try, confirmation bias is difficult to eradicate. <laughs> so I thought it was good. But for me, the article set out clearly and effectively the issues currently at stake with China policy. There's a lot in it, and I guess we'll link to it on the show notes, Darren. But yeah. let me just quote one paragraph that will give you the tone. And here is Kelly. Listening to much of the debate about China in Australia, you would think a litany of warnings, dissatisfactions and denunciations of China constitute a policy. Well, they don't. What is Australia trying to achieve? It's possible to support most of the Turnbull and Morrison government's specific decisions that relate to China, as I do, but still ask this question because it is not sufficiently answered. There is one stance that should be rejected outright, that China has become such a hostile power that Australia must accept whatever retaliation Beijing inflicts in order to honour our sovereignty and values. This is the road to doom, but it has its champions. Can I interrupt you there, Alan, noting that you've got two reasons to go, because what struck me about the Kelly column was, it's as I said a minute ago, it's juxtaposition with the news the previous week about this domestic law enforcement activity. While it's unclear whether these raids and the associated investigation are linked to the experience of the now evacuated China correspondents that we discussed previously, uh, Bill Bertels and Mike Smith, it is clear that these activities by Australian authorities upset the Chinese government. You had the foreign ministry spokesman, Zhao Lijian, saying that these actions, quote, severely interrupts the normal reporting of Chinese media outlets in Australia, blatantly violates the legitimate rights and interests of Chinese journalists there, end quote. 
And he also called upon the government to stop, quote, such blatant irrational behaviours, stop harassing and oppressing Chinese personnel in Australia under whatever pretext, end quote. So Beijing will simply never believe that these actions would be the result of an impartial rule of law based process. They would see, do see politics as inevitably being involved, of course, in large part because they would be if this was the case in China. So you've got domestic law enforcement activities affecting the bilateral relationship. And if you think about the biggest irritants in the relationship from the past few years, the banning of Huawei, the passing of the foreign interference legislation, and now these enforcement actions, they are domestic policies that in an ideal world would have no bearing on foreign policy and should not be thought of as playing any part of a China policy or a China strategy. So my question is, is the implication of Kelly's critique is that they should be, that the government needs to adopt a comprehensive fusing, if you like, of domestic and foreign policies when it comes to China? Should DFAT be a stakeholder in the law enforcement activities described above in such a fusion of domestic and foreign policy? I don't see any contradictions at all there. You seem to be conceptualising what you call the bilateral relationship as something which operates in a field outside the realm of domestic politics. You just said that in an ideal Mm. world, domestic policies would have no bearing on foreign policy. But look, I don't think that's ever been the case. Every bilateral relationship of substance we have engages and is affected by domestic policy in some dimension. You can think of the way domestic responses to the ban on live cattle exports to Indonesia affected our relationship with Jakarta, or New Zealand's perennial complaints about the deportation of New Zealand citizens who lived virtually their entire lives in Australia. So bilateral relationships encompass everything that one state does that has an impact on the interests of another. I guess if I follow my logic and think about how you could make cost-benefit calculations about the merits of a given domestic policy action, such as the enforcement of foreign interference legislation, based upon its international implications, I'm thinking of a particular hypothetical. We, Australia, discovered that there was clear evidence, say, of foreign interference activity, but the key Australian individuals involved were minor parliamentarians maybe in a small state in the opposition. And therefore, the short-term consequence of any interference in terms of benefiting a foreign power, say, are minimal, right? It's not a hugely risky, albeit bad, thing that's happening. So ASIO and AFP, they have all their evidence. They're ready to go. But simultaneously to this investigation, you have secret negotiations maybe that are being conducted by DFAT here with the Chinese government about a bilateral summit between the Prime Minister and the Chinese President that would be the first since the chill in these relations began, and it would happen sometime in the next few months. So if you proceed with this enforcement activity and you place sovereignty above all else, then you would really extinguish any possibility of a summit like this happening and and repairing the bilateral relationship. And that has, of course, consequences for other dimensions of our national interest. So the argument in this hypothetical would be that law enforcement should at least be informed about these diplomatic considerations and 
potentially think about how it's going to exercise its discretion to conduct these activities and maybe in some situations actually pause, right? Or, or maybe give a warning to this particular upper house member in this small state. And so that's the logic in this hypothetical is I'm not advocating for it. And of course, there are good reasons for focusing and elevating sovereignty as the, the most important national interest. But it did get me thinking, Alan. I'm not a lawyer, but isn't that the sort of thing that happens all the time? Security services, police, public prosecutors are regularly making judgments based on a whole range of different interests about whether and how actively they'll pursue certain cases. Cops have limited resources, and like all of us, they have to make judgments about how to deploy them. A good example that you can think of might be the regular demands for the federal police to conduct inquiries into leaks of government information <laughs> and the yes. careful way these are handled or ignored. So I think or it's ignored. <laughs> or ignored. So I think it's entirely possible and proper that in certain circumstances, one of the considerations that will come into play about investigations might be the impact on our international relationships. I guess what I'm wondering is, yes, it's true that law enforcement agencies take politics and all sorts of considerations into account, but whether or not they are formally or even not formally, but regularly in the habit of involving outside expertise into this decision-making. Wouldn't it be prudent for, I mean, there's no way that the ASIO and the AFP are going to have full knowledge of the relationship, especially if there are things happening behind the scenes. So could there be a role to involve them in a consistent way? It doesn't have to be formal, but in a consistent way in giving a complete picture. I mean, maybe it's not Peter Dutton giving Maurice Payne a phone call and asking her what's going on, but perhaps involving these kinds of decisions at the National Security of Cabin or something like that. I guess what the reason I can't let this go is that to me, the logical endpoint of Kelly's argument, his criticism of the lack of coherence or the failure of the Australian government to articulate a clear policy is asserting greater control over what happens inside our shores. Because if it's true that domestic actions should be conducted separately, then there's never going to be any kind of coherence to our China policy because every now and then something is going to happen that is going to be an irritant in the relationship but that, that could never have formed part of a government strategy and therefore is going to make the overall policy look like it's flailing, look like it is not directed towards some strategic purpose. I mean, am I missing something here? I think you're overinterpreting quite a lot. Look, I don't think Kelly would imagine such a degree of control is possible. And look, it's not just actions by other government agencies that are going to have an impact on foreign relationships. Sometimes they'll have nothing to do with government at all. There are plenty of examples to draw on from our relationships with Southeast Asia, where media reports totally unconnected with the government have suddenly sent relations into a downward spiral. So foreign policy centrally involves the management of that continuous stream of unexpected incidents that will impact on a relationship. If it's not possible for an authoritarian government like China's to manage a seamless whole of government strategy towards other countries, it's certainly not going to be possible mm. for us. And by the way, just in passing, I thought that Beijing's clearly reciprocal decision recently, reciprocal for those bans on the two academics you talked about earlier, Darren, the, the 
the bands they've announced on Clive Hamilton and Alex Josky, who were never going to apply for a visa to China, was another example of super klutzy Chinese diplomacy that we've seen recently. Yeah, I, I agree, Alan. Well, thank you for in, indulging me in that line of inquiry. <laughs> what were the other two reasons why you thought the Paul Kelly opinion piece was notable? Yeah, okay. Well, quickly, this, the second is because of who Kelly is. He's one of the most senior and experienced journalists in Australia and therefore someone who influences the views of others. And I don't mean he just influences the views of his readers, but other journalists too. You can think of Kelly as the Bob Woodward of Australian reporters. He's got the same sort of, you know, gravitas and age, and he writes the histories in a series of books dating, well, including The End of Certainty, his history of the Hawke-Keating governments. He's produced the influential first drafts of Australian political history, and as with Woodward, this makes him influential with politicians and public servants who, naturally enough, like all of us, want history to treat them well. And the third reason is because of where it appeared in the opinion pages of The Australian, where, with a few exceptions, we've had a, encountered quite a hard line on China yeah. policy. Yeah. So Kelly's column may suggest a shift in the weight of commentary in the national broadsheet with the potential to affect other parts of the Murdoch empire. We'll have to wait and see whether it does mark any sort of refocusing of the China discussion, but I do hope Kelly's article suggests that we're perhaps moving beyond the simplistic sloganeering of the Wolverines, Darren. Indeed. Here, here, Alan. Well, let's move on. It'd be good not to talk about China for a few minutes. So our second item... Earlier this month, Australia had its first trilateral meeting with India and France done by video conference. DFAT Secretary Francis Adamson represented Australia. And in a statement that was a bit light on detail, the DFAT media release said that the dialogue focused on regional and global challenges, including those posed by COVID-19. Interestingly, the parties committed to having these discussions annually from now on. And separately to that, there has also been discussion of another trilateral grouping, this time between Australia, India and Indonesia. Now, there's already a senior officials dialogue between the three countries that began in 2017. So I assume that might mean these are elevated, perhaps even to a ministerial level this year. So, Alan, a general question to begin with, is there anything special about trilateral meetings, you know, about the number three that we can distinguish from groupings of four or five or even more? Or is it just that they're a bit more complex than bilaterals but have less complexity than larger groupings? That is an unexpected question, Darren. Let's go for the simplest answer, which is, in fact, the one you've just offered. I think they're just easier to arrange than larger groupings while preserving enough intimacy to let participants have quite pointed discussions. The threesomes spice up the sometimes tired rituals of bilateral congresses, and let's leave it there, Darren. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that, Alan. You've, you've rendered me speechless. Okay, well, well, we, we <laughs> we've talked about new forms of cooperation already with, with Richard Maud on a recent episode, but there the focus was on the five eyes. And 
you commented towards the end of that episode, made a really insightful comment, I think, that working with these types of countries was easy and that we needed to pay particular care to ensure that we're not just hanging out with our mates. Is this therefore, this trilateral, a positive sign for you? And, and what do you think can come of it? I think it is important and it gives weight to the calls we've seen in Australian white papers and ministerial speeches for some time now for new patterns of cooperation across the Indo-Pacific. I attended a one and a half track, as they call them, and that means including not just officials, but also academics and other riffraff like that between Australia, India and France and New Delhi a couple of years ago, I found it a really rewarding conversation because of the different angles of view on subjects of common interest you got from those three different national perspectives. And the same would certainly be true of an India, Indonesia, Australia meeting. What comes out of them is a better understanding of the underlying assumptions and objectives of the different parties. And that's the prerequisite for opening up opportunities for cooperation and action. Of course, Australia already has a trilateral with the US and Japan, and of course, the much discussed quad with those two countries and India, and then you have five eyes. So that's already a pretty complex array of linkages. Do you have a, a specific theory of minilateralism, Alan? You know, when should minilateral groupings become larger multilateral groupings? Until you ask that question, Darren, I can honestly say that I have never thought about having a theory of minilateralism. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, for me, for me, such groupings are just part of the endlessly shifting landscape of international relations. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're useful for a fixed purpose. Sometimes they morph into something different. So just off the top of my head, I can think of the way the Singapore, New Zealand, Chile, Brunei discussions about a trade agreement in 2005 expanded into what became the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Mm. So that might fit your question about a minilateral becoming a multilateral or the five-power defence arrangement is still formally in existence between Australia, the UK, New Zealand, Malaysia and Singapore, but much more important for various reasons in the 1970s and 80s than now. Look, I don't mean to be dismissive of theory. Keynes's famous quote, what was it, about practical men who believe themselves quite exempt from any intellectual influence being the slave of some <laughs> defunct economist, and for this podcast we might add IR theorist, is quite right. Though, you know, let's be honest, there are theories and theories. But when you formulate the theory of minilateralism, Darren, let me know and I'll adopt it as my own. <laughs> well, I think you've just done one. You've just you've, What you've just said there are the beginnings of, of a pretty good theory. As you suggest, maybe governments don't, need a specific outcome in mind, just a shared concern. And in this case, you assume China is pretty front and central. And talking focuses the attention of each government and its bureaucracy. Maybe it leads to something more. And if not, it, at least it sends a signal. And not just to China, but to other countries, maybe smaller ASEAN countries in this case, and the US, that the countries are serious and they're willing to roll up their sleeves and do things. In these cases, I think it's a particularly useful way to involve powers from outside of East and Southeast Asia 
and here you've got you know India and France in discussions about regional security. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on quickly to our third item. We have a new prime minister in Japan, Suga Yoshihide, who had been the chief cabinet secretary under the former prime minister Abe. And that's a position that I understand commonly leads to the Prime Minister's office. In contrast to his predecessor, though, Mr. Suga comes from very humble beginnings. He was the son of a strawberry farmer and a teacher, in contrast to Abe, who was the son of a foreign minister and the grandson of a prime minister. Now, he has said pretty explicitly that he wants to continue with Abe's policies Suga called our Prime Minister Morrison on Sunday, and he was the first foreign leader I think that he spoke to following becoming Prime Minister. So, Alan, any reaction here? As we said on our last program, you know, the change from Abe is important because of his particular ambition and drive and his personal contact with foreign leaders. So, Suga's policies are not going to be very different in their objectives and those predictable close ties with the US free and open Indo-Pacific and so on, although they may be carried out with less flair, I think the Australia-Japan relationship is so deeply embedded in policy in both Canberra and Tokyo that it's unlikely to be affected very much. And you saw that, as you point out, in that early call that he made to Morrison. We'll have our differences from time to time, as we had with Abe over Japan's whaling program, for example. And, you know, by the way, there you have another domestic policy (laughs) impacting on foreign policy. Mm -hmm. But the strategic fundamentals will keep us together. Suga's unlikely to be as personally in control of foreign policy as Abe. So the foreign minister and defence minister may become more important. Suga left most of Abe's cabinet in place and Toshimitsu Mategi remains as the foreign minister. Harking back to the last discussion, Maurice Payne is expected to travel in person to Tokyo shortly for a meeting of Quad's foreign ministers. That'll be an important opportunity for her to meet Suga in person. And of course, stories about Morrison visiting Japan have been in the air for quite a while now too. Yeah, it just occurred to me when you use the word flair to describe Abe, Japan has been celebrated in in recent years for having a very active policy of engagement with the region and in in many ways seen as balancing a counterweight to China's active engagement. And I do wonder how much of that is our reaction to the charisma and to the the vigour of Abe's own personal diplomacy and his building of, of relationships with leaders versus sort of the concrete machinery and policy decisions, which have been there. But uh, it'll be interesting to see whether we have the same perception of Japan, you know, in the next 12 months, if you have someone with less flair and charisma and less, maybe less interest in foreign policy, and certainly fewer personal relationships at the helm. So I think it's something to worth watching. Yeah, look, I, I think we've had in the quads the unusual position of three, at least if you exclude Scott Morrison, flamboyant mm. leaders in Modi Abe and Trump, and the reversion to type, which I suspect we'll be, be seeing with Suga and Japanese politicians, will be interesting to observe. Okay, for our final story, let's turn to Thailand, where thousands of protesters have turned out to demand a curb on the powers of the king. Demonstrations have been going for a couple of months now, broadly against the dominance of the monarchy and the military in Thai governance. 
Importantly, though, the country has very strict laws against criticising the monarchy. So these protests are breaking a taboo as well as possibly some laws. But from what I can tell so far, they have not turned violent and the authorities have been restrained in trying to suppress them. And that's a break from the past. And despite them being also technically illegal given a COVID-19 state of emergency, Thailand's government has been dominated by the military since 2014 military coup, but also has a long tradition of military involvement in the decades before that. Alan, I haven't seen any statements from the Australian government about the protests, nor much attention in the media. Is there something that we should be paying more attention to? Well, I think we should be paying attention. This news is interesting for two reasons. The first is the fact that so little attention has been paid here in in Australia to these significant student demonstrations against the military and the monarchy, which are the two most powerful institutions in Thailand. And this looks like another illustration of a trend we've talked about before, which is the marginalisation of Southeast Asia in Australian public discussion of foreign policy and in government priorities in the face of what's sort of become almost a mono-focus on China, which you can see from the from our own podcast yes. <laughs> week yes. after week. Media editors are obviously prioritising away from Southeast Asia in favour of the big China story. If you're an ambitious journalist and you want your story on the front page, you know, find a China angle and that'll get you there. The second reason is that it raises again the issue of values in foreign policy and their relationship to our other objectives. So I'm pretty sure that if these demonstrations were taking place in China or Hong Kong, they would have had much more coverage and we'd have heard words of encouragement from the Australian government. But because Thailand is a member of ASEAN and an American ally, the government has an interest in keeping a low profile here. I do think we would speak out if the army moved violently against the students. I'm not suggesting that we did ignore that, but the Australian government will certainly be hoping that things don't come to that. The PM gave an interview on the ABC Insiders program recently, and he offered an interesting formulation on regional relations, I thought. After noting the importance of our relationships with Japan, India, Indonesia, and Singapore, he added, and I'm quoting him here, Vietnam. I mean, one of the most important relationships we've been developing most recently outside of Indonesia in the region has been with Vietnam, who have proved to be a great strategic partner on many issues within the Indo-Pacific. So the way I think we come through this is by drawing together a region that is focused on stability, end quote. Now, I fully agree with that, but the emphasis there is very different from the stirring rhetoric about never abandoning our values. Mm -hmm. Well said, Alan. Let me add two quick points. First, I wonder whether we don't all have a bit of protest fatigue, given the dizzying array of protests that have happened around the world last year and have continued into 2020. You you can think of what's happening in Belarus right now as well, which is, is equally remarkable, if not more so. And I have come to believe that popular protest is going to become or has become 
a more permanent feature of politics around the world. It's stepped up in its importance and its prominence. And I've been influenced by Martin Gurry's book, The Revolt of the Public, which I've recommended on this podcast before, and to me is the single most influential book that I've read in the past five years. The second reason is that protests obviously vary in terms of their implications for domestic politics. You know, you could ask, are they threatening to bring down a government? Or are they especially shocking to our consciences in terms of how they're being repressed? But also they vary in terms of their implications for foreign policy. I wonder if the US, for example, would be paying more attention if these protests were led by a charismatic populist who had promised to end the US's security treaty with Thailand and get much closer to Beijing. Anyway, on that note, let's turn to our final segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what do you have for us this week? Well, just continuing those last thoughts about stability as an objective of our foreign policy compared with promotion of values, I've just finished the latest book by Joseph Nye, who's most famous to the public anyway, if not to academics like you, for introducing the idea of soft power into the discussion of international relations. Nye has been at Harvard since 1964 with stints in government dating back to the Carter administration, so his analysis is informed by practical experience and deep knowledge. The book is called Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump. The most interesting dimension of this for me in terms of current Australian policy discussion is that it forces the reader to think about whether there are differences between a values-based foreign policy and a moral foreign policy, and if there are, where do they lie? A moral foreign policy, Nye argues, involves not just the intentions of the policymaker, but the consequences that flow from their actions and the means that were used, and he examines the policies of all the post-Second World War US presidents in that light. Thanks, Alan. Well, for me, a few nights ago, I watched the new Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. It covers the field of social media and the topic of how social media influences our lives. And it begins with what it's doing to our children and to our personal relationships. But then as it progresses through the hour and a half, gets darker and even darker and talks about the implications for democracy and our ability to, to solve global problems. It features pretty prominently two of the most interesting public intellectuals on the subject that I've encountered, Tristan Harris and Jaron Lanier, both of whom have been interviewed on the Ezra Klein podcast, which is a favourite of both Alan and mine. And I'll link to those as well in the show notes. As soon as the documentary finished, I opened up my phone and deleted Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram from my phone and noting that I've already Yay! <laughs> um, <laughs> noting that I've, I've been on Facebook for a few years now. But of those apps, the only one that I, I really need is Twitter. And so I'm going to access that through my desktop and through the app Nuzzle that I recommended last week. So I won't say anything more, but I think everyone should try and get a hold of and view it because it is, I think, one of the defining issues, social issues of our time. But for those of us who care about foreign policy, it's just as relevant to foreign policy as well. All right. Well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we thank AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for research and audio editing. 
XE Chong for research support, and of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. That's all. Thank you and talk to you again soon.